Hello, printmaking friends, and welcome to the fourth episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release an episode of Pine Copper Lime once every two weeks, and on the off weeks, I put up an article on the website that features images and maybe a bit more information about the artist that I'm going to interview. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Facebook, Instagram, of course, and as of this week, Twitter. And as soon as I figure out what Twitter is, how it works, and why there's such a lack of pictures, I'll start posting there too. This week, I'm talking to Miles Calvert, and I have to say, you all are in for a real treat. He's an absolute delight and a bona fide hoot. This is also probably the first week that I get into some real nice deep print nerd chat. So if anyone's been holding out for witty banter around chemistry or safety regulations, you're going to get a little bit of that in this episode. We're also going to talk about his practice as a traveling adjunct instructor, how he balances that with his passion for the craft of teaching, and we have some pretty nice Damien Hirst gossip in there as well. So I would definitely say stay tuned, and if you like what you hear, leave us a review on the iTunes store. It's quick, it's free, and it's a great way to show your support for the podcast and say, hey, I like that there's a podcast that talks about contemporary printmaking that no one else understands. And without further ado, here's Miles. Hi, Miles. How's it going? It's going well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Yeah. How are things in Alfred? Oh, not bad. Uh, semester's going hard, going strong. Lots of students in the studio. Hey, that's Keeping what we like. Yeah. Uh, we had alumni weekend this weekend. So lots of, uh, lots of parents hovering around the studios, football game. Oh, man. That sounds very wholesome and Americana. <laughs> American pie. <laughs> um, well, that's great. Well, would you mind introducing yourself just a little bit and telling people uh, where you are and what you do? Sure. Um, my name is Miles Calvert. I am currently a visiting professor in expanded media at Alfred University, and I'm also teaching at Alfred State College. My focus is on printmaking, but I dabble in other mediums as well. Great. So um, you sort of touched on that for a second, the expanded media at Alfred. Um, but maybe you could talk a little bit about what you do at Alfred and sort of how Alfred's print department is pretty unique and goes at things with maybe a different angle than other print departments at other universities. Absolutely. So it's, it's a bit more than a traditional uh, printmaking facility. Like they do have stone lithography and etching presses and nitric acid. However, the expanded media portion also includes lots of technology. So we've got 3D printers, we have uh, laser engravers, um, a plate maker for photo etching as well, and a fabric printer. So the surface is no longer just paper. We go onto anything flat and different materials constantly. Yeah. So how did you come to printmaking and have it be a part of your art practice? I had a great experience. I went to the University of Guelph in Ontario. It's about 45 minutes west of Toronto. I just started going there because the campus had a, a great vibe. Every year it got better and better. I took 2D, 3D, 
And then just kind of focused more on the 2D, got hooked with a great print professor, Jean Madison. Uh, she's British, currently working out of the, um, uh, where is she now? She's in Vancouver, I believe, maybe coming back to Ontario soon, hopefully. She taught me pretty much everything I know. The facilities there were fantastic technicians as well. I think it's the relationships that I made there and uh, students and faculty members that kept me on the printmaking train. Yeah, absolutely. Having that one influential professor can certainly completely change the course of a person's it, life, for sure. Well, someone had like this, this way of speaking, which was very direct and honest, which when you only have a few years to pick up what you need to pick up for a skill, that's what you need. Do you attempt to, to emulate that in your own teaching practice? I try my best, but I think I'm a little more soft than she was. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, you're not, you're not a British woman, which I feel like, I feel like it's easier to take bad news from that accent. Well, you know, give me time. You never know what can happen. But <laughs> the feedback I try to give is usually direct. It can be a little fluffy maybe in the, uh, in the sophomore years. But as you go on, you want to get it hard. You want to get the answer quickly. And you want to move on to improve on what you're working on. Yeah, that's certainly a, it was a watershed moment for me in my schooling was when you make that shift between dreading feedback and loving it. You know, just yeah. like, tell me what I'm doing wrong, please. And because uh, that's how you get better. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And if you don't get it from your peers, something's not happening. You should get it from both sides, your peer and from your faculty members. Yeah, certainly. Do you think that it's possible to cultivate that in uh, while teaching in an art setting to encourage the peers to give that honest feedback, that, but without sort of coming from a place of ego? Oh, absolutely. You're going to learn better from the people who you're constantly surrounding yourself with for your time. And that's just not in academia. It's outside as well as a practicing artist. If you don't surround yourself by people who are also working and pushing themselves and working hard and achieving, you are not going to do the same yourself. So the first thing I do with my students is get them to talk directly to one student at a time in the critique. Mm. So you're getting, you know, 15 voices all at the same time speaking about one person's work. And then we switch it up as we go, different ways of critiquing. But if you're hearing from someone generally your age in your program, learning at the exact same time that you are, you're going to listen more than that older person who's telling you what to do. Mm, yeah, definitely. So you talked a little bit about the variety of resources that are available in Alfred and how it's really that mix of new technology and old technology. But I feel like that also shows up in your work as well. And I'd love to hear you tell me a little bit about how you sort of see those interacting and how that fits into your practice as a whole. That's a tricky one. See, the, the role of the traveling, visiting, adjunct, sessional professor mm. that I use facilities that are at my disposal. Right. So I might be here for the next year and I have these phenomenal facilities, but I'm going to use what I might not have if I go back to working at OCAD, don't downtown Toronto, or the University of Guelph, where they have um, maybe a different chemistry. Mm. So my work completely evolves uh, depending on what I have access to. And I think that would go for any 
any person who needs a different type of studio access. Um, my work, I love looking at the past and kind of bringing technology into it to make it into a contemporary print and not just a contemporary image. Mm. So mm -hmm. if, I, if you wanted an example, I'm, I'm staring right now at a stack of Love Seats, which is a, a screen print. And it's using a photographic process, which is not necessarily new and contemporary. That's been along, you know, since the 40s and 50s, actually. But adding things to my ink, changing the colors with pigments that didn't exist back then, it's just kind of taking what it is and pushing it a bit further to give it a different spin. Mm. And so that having to adapt your practice, or maybe even rephrasing it to say, getting to adapt your practice. Do you see that as, I mean, I guess it must keep you really nimble as an artist and, and really fight complacency quite fiercely. Well, it keeps me on my toes because um, I'll get thrown into different situations where it's always a new studio and each studio is completely different of you know, how they look after their health and safety, which pigments they're using, what students are allowed to use what, and I've had the best results when I've done a residency, for example. I went to Arquitopia in Mexico, uh, Puebla, and it was the whole assignment that I had planned for my time there, a whole month, completely changed when I arrived. Mm. So it's having that flexibility of having to strip back to the bare bones and reimagine your projects. It's very uh, stressful for about 20 seconds and then completely freeing for the rest of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And did you just, you just came back from a residency in Spain, is that correct as well? I did, print residence, yeah, about uh, 45 minutes up the coast from Barcelona. Spent a fantastic month there just working on large scale copper plates um, ferric chloride, so something I didn't have access to and still don't. Um, we use nitric currently where I'm where I'm working. So a different material, but I went with the focus of wanting to use that scale and that chemistry. Yeah, I guess that's the life of the traveling artist teacher, which can be, as we all know, pretty unstable, but it also does offer incredible opportunities when you do have the the luxury of just going to a print right. residency can, for a month life into you know a bag and a half or two bags and disappear for the summer it's it's fantastic not just as an artist but as like a human you mm -hmm. get to go and ex explore different parts of the world and you get to make work because it's you know the same old story when you're teaching you don't get a lot of work done during the semester right. but that's, that's just life, and I wouldn't change it for anything at the moment. Yeah. Now, did you get to stay on in Spain and do impact, or I don't think I saw you there? I didn't, but lots of people who I miss and love completely did. I <laughs> so know. I but I did bounce to the UK and did some teaching there at the old... Um, I used to work at Sussex Coast College in Hastings in East Sussex, and I go back um, as much as I can, but definitely once every July and do a week or two of teaching for them. So a week of etching and a week of screen print. And then I bounced over to France, and mm. that was pure pleasure. But <laughs> looking at different galleries, 
and spending five days in, in London and seeing Ed Ruscher and going to my favorite, the portrait gallery and buying some natural pigments at all my secret little haunts that I used to love so much when I lived there. Um, it's just a fantastic opportunity. Very lucky to be able to do things like that. Yeah. I think that's a good way to get into one of the questions I had for you, which was specifically about how the time that you spent in the UK has affected your practice, because there's a uh, undercurrent of Britishness in what you do, for lack of a better way of, yeah. of putting it, which is um, really charming and I think maybe particularly interesting to me as an American and you as a Canadian, you know, we both have that sort of... It's the motherland. It's the motherland, exactly, exactly. You know, we as Americans may have rebelled a little bit more strongly in our teenage years, but, you know, it's still, <laughs> it's still, it's still the motherland, as you say. And, um, and I think something that we, one way or another, maybe particularly in kind of academic settings, look to as as an ideal of some kind. So I, yeah, I, I love that about your work and I just love to hear that story. You're going to find it funny because the more I talk about the UK and London in my time there, I switch into like an accent. <laughs> yes. So, just, just, and then I'm going to become that British woman that we spoke about before. <laughs> but You should try that for your critiques. <laughs> I did a semester abroad in my third year. Um, through the University of Guelph to London. And I took as little coursework as I possibly could to give myself more of an opportunity to bounce around the city and to jump to like mainland Europe. It was so worth it. Mm. Uh, every weekend was somewhere new, every day popping up at a different tube location, a different gallery, a different bar, a different part of the city. Uh, I came back completely malnourished and dyed my hair black and looked so sickly. Um, just in time for Christmas to get plumped up again. But that experience with that culture and weather, it just, it did something for me. So I applied for my master's degree at Camberwell College of Art, uh, part of University for the Arts in London. Uh, their, their big claim to fame is Central St. Martin's and Chelsea. It's five uh, colleges that came together to make a university, basically. Um, my time there was was good. Like the masters kept me uh, fairly busy. I met uh, lots of fantastic artists in lots of different disciplines. Um, I volunteered at a print studio, Thumbprint Editions, and they did editions for Anish Kapoor, the Chapman Brothers, um, Damien Hirst, mm. all the big, yeah. all the big kind of. Tracy Ammon, on and on and on. That was an interesting experience, um, learning how in the middle of a, a filthy, busy studio, you can still make immaculate prints. Hmm. So that's what I picked up from them. That kept me kind of in the contemporary print world in a way, because of all of the galleries that are just there, that they don't exist in other places, maybe in New York City, maybe Berlin. Um, but London is definitely a hub and print is appreciated there. Yeah. So I was there for roughly five years and just in the thick of it, worked at Selfridges, did high-end retail. Um, celebrities came through all the time. It mm. was 
I tried to dive into into the life. So switch to tea, (laughs) (laughs) stereotypical things. And I think what kept it interesting for me is the fact that every day I had to take a bendy bus to get into the center of London. I worked at the National Portrait Gallery for three and a half-ish years where I I saw the runnings of one of my favorite galleries. Mm -hmm. It was just from the inside out. And it's still one of my favorite galleries today. Even, you know, sometimes you work places and you don't (laughs) see it the same as you once did. But I go back every time with a huge smile on my face. But the history is there from Tudor portraits all the way up to a commission from Alex Katz from last week. So that kept me loving the area. Yeah. And you touched on it a little bit, but I'd I'd love to maybe explore... Where prints fit into British culture, you said they may have been taken a little bit more seriously than we're used to in North America. Can you speak to that a little bit? If I was to have a fairly educated guess about it, it would be a connection to the old old world uh, Germany, mm. industrial revolution, having access to facilities, but having presses and using them, like fully using them, pushing their potential. And having them for so long that it's just sitting there, they're going to keep using it. So they're not looking for the newest thing all the time. I remember watching a documentary with Attenborough, whose Mm. studio is in Bermondsey, which was two blocks around the corner from where I was living. And you wouldn't even know it. You have artists there who are huge in the art world who live around the corner and they don't get bothered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> they walk to the pub and just around the corner, they're making a phenomenal etching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's, that you've touched on like a few things in there that are part of those big cultural differences between well, America they, they, and, and, and Britain. You know, that, that searching yeah. for what's new or thinking that something can't be good unless it has an air of being novel about it. You know, they don't, maybe they don't have that because they've, they've got a history and a sense of culture that's so strong, they don't need to push to be new for the sake of being new. I think there's respect as well for old processes and mm-hmm. understanding how they were made. So that's why um, car boot sales, as they'll call it, or yard sales, jumble sales, mm-hmm. are still very popular. Mm-hmm. And it's a big event. That sounds really fun. <laughs> Another kind of connection would be I moved down to Hastings eventually when I started teaching more at the college down there, but they also opened up a brand new gallery called the Jarewood Gallery, which is part of a huge foundation. And I was exposed every day to contemporary and modern British art. So that really ingrained kind of the history of British art in particular in the global scene. Yeah. And then I feel like the artifacts of your time in the UK show up in your work uh, in actual Mm -hmm. objects. Would you say that that's accurate? Definitely through color and through pattern. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you're hinting towards a toaster shape. I'm I'm just skirting this whole toaster. (laughs) But then I'm trying to casually um, segue into really just talking about the content of your work and that you've got these everyday objects of comfort um, and our relationships to them as well as 
popular culture and all of that. That's all there in your work. And I'd love to to hear you talk about the the actual objects, those sort of domestic objects that show up. Uh, it, it began with having lots of frustrations while doing my master's degree and just wanting to use the medium of screen print and mass production and referencing the history of why that process was even invented and not wanting to spend a ton of money and making it super official on paper. I wanted something disposable and quick and I wanted to get my that stage of life over with. Mm-hmm. So I printed on loaves of bread, which were then, like sliced pieces of bread, which were then um, toasted and installed. Um, I did Damien Hirst's face first, kind of poking fun at the art world and celebrity and, and seeing uh, religion and images like uh, the Virgin Mary on toast, etc. Right. So I threw him there, the big art star that he was, is, um, because it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then I put my face on there, <laughs> even more ridiculous. <laughs> and I remember applying for a job at his store, Other Criteria, which sells multiples by artists who he invites to partake and I couriered it with a like a guy on a motorcycle and put all of my face and his face on toast in a big box like my resume on the top and an application for the, the job and the courier got there and they phoned me and they're like um the store is closed today what do you oh, want me to no. do was not pleased so I said is there a mailbox and he said yes and he opened the box and he put every little individual piece of toast through the mailbox for me and then he threw the resume on top (laughs) and then about maybe two weeks afterwards this email saying would you like to come and retrieve your toast and you did not get the job (laughs) (laughs) so whatever you had to try right But it's it's the object of bread and toast that led to toasters, kind of a natural progression. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily the fact that it's a toaster. It's the fact that it's something that is recognizable by whoever sees it from wherever. And the purpose and design of it has not greatly changed over the however many years that it's been made. Mm. So it's... I find that interesting, and that's when color comes in. So I'll have the exact same object, and I'll print it multiple times using different mediums, and I'll change the color. And I'm hoping that the color will change an individual's perspective and time period when they look at it, based on their history and their mm-hmm. memories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's what is kind of the core interest to me at the moment. So sort of like a, a Madeline of visual arts. The, mm. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Let me think that one through. Maybe. It's, um, I'm constantly working through it. And I remember giving like my first little talk at Alfred University and being asked a similar question, the why question, which is the one that everyone dreads, but mm. I ask it all the time of my students. And my answer was, I'm not entirely sure yet, which is why I'm still looking and pushing for answers and researching. Yeah. But it's it's color theory, 
it's romanticism, it's the individual feelings that people get, which are always different. You're never going to have the exact same feeling as someone else. Mm -hmm. Everyone, as you say, definitely does have that personal connection to color and experience. And so I really like that idea of taking these objects of comfort and home, you know, and I assume that Ottomans fit into this as well, but we can, we can talk about those separately if need be, but, and then having the color be really what personalizes it for people and really playing in that experience of each individual person having an individual period, uh, having an individual Oh, I, this is going to sound so dramatic, but I really love black. <laughs> I knew it was coming. I just knew it. I know. I'm so sorry. The response. I know. I try to tell people that it's really, I'm, I'm, I, I may sometimes seem like a fancy gallerist, but I promise I'm just a fat goth. Like, <laughs> like my true form <laughs> underneath <laughs> is I've got my eyes just like outlined in raccoon eyes. Um, <sighs> and, uh, and, and I've got, you know, fishnets and, um, and a, just a giant septum piercing and it's, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, well, I, I learned that I have to function in society. So we all wear our masks. This is true. This is, I love a little a good a quote from the mask as well. <laughs> Jim Carrey reference. Um, I'm wearing all black right now, and that's nothing new. But it's also a practical reason, because when I'm in the studio, I get absolutely covered in dust from wood blocks and ink from an inky table mm-hmm. and oil and you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I think that with the, you know, gal that typical sort of gallerist wearing black, part of it is of course that you don't want to distract from the art. There's a practical reason when you're standing next to a painting talking about it, you don't want the fact that you are wearing a yellow dress and the painting has yellow to distract from the visual experience. But I think it's also the practical because as you, as you well know, being someone working in the arts, it is not a glamorous job being a gallerist. Like there is a lot of dusting and lifting and straightening and crawling underneath things that you have to do. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that's just the physical part. There's the whole mental part, which I know is absolutely exhausting. Mm. So, oh. but I think working in prints and having a price point that started at $150 and, and obviously, you know, we did have five figure pieces. We did sell Eschers and that kind of thing, but a lot of what we did was under a thousand and that really allowed us, I think, to deal with people who are not necessarily elite to the point that they're expecting very special treatment. And that, that was easier. I I don't, I think it would be difficult for me at this point to go to a very high end gallery. um, I I went to a, gallery in London this this summer and um, I knew they were having an open house slash tour talk about the drawings and prints in the collection and I'm like perfect I have a few hours to spare let's go check this out and they had sales there really uh, low pressure sales Um, you know take your time ask any questions the Mm -hmm. way it should be yeah (laughs) and I walked out with something and I was quite happy yeah and I, I, I think that there's kind of an honestness 
imprints that I really love about that is that it's, mm. it's ex more accepted to just say, do you like this? Yeah. Can you afford it? Go home with it. And it really just being that kind of pure and you'd get into less conversations about what is this going to be worth in 20 years? What is this going to be worth in 40 years? Tell me about where is this artist showing? What collections are they in? Which is all significant in art collecting, but it, it, it is removed from just that personal experience, one-on-one -on -one person and object. Um, it's removed from that kind of honesty, I think. I think it's a great conversation, and I don't think it happens the same with painting. No. No. Or sculpture, for that matter. Mm hmm mm. And I, I love that about, about printmaking. And I, it, the other side of that coin, of course, is that we do end up having that devaluing of prints or and prints being separated. And, you know, we have our own fairs and our own conferences, and there are galleries that just don't deal in prints and there are museums that just don't collect prints but kind of being a bit removed from all that art world bullshit also does afford us a great honesty which I love it I love being in this medium I don't I don't think I'd have it any other way I'm so happy you said that <laughs> yeah that's why I had the uh, the gall to believe that um you know, a whole podcast dedicated to contemporary printmaking, that'll take off. <laughs> so do it. It's, I have these conversations with my students all the time, and it's usually on a one-to-one -one basis, which is quite funny, because then I end up having it multiple times. But they hit a point in their, in their education where they, they kind of get what print is all about. And it's like a little aha, mm. light comes on moment. And they... They talk to me like it's new to me. <laughs> and, and I love it. So I love hearing their explanations of um, how they explained a print and a process to a family member over a holiday or how they really like the bevel of the paper or the tooth of it and how long they had to soak it for and what it did and the mm. quality and the result. And then they get hooked. Yeah. And that is the best possible moment. And it's so exciting. Yeah, and it's, I, I wonder if when we really finish um, doing all the genetic science on people, we'll, we'll find the printmaking gene because it's like some people have it and some people don't. And when you see it kind of light up in them, yeah. or I would have that moment at the gallery talking to people because people would come in not having any idea what they were looking at. It was oh, like, yeah. uh, you know, they'd be like, what are these charcoals? What are these photographs? And when you'd explain to them, some people would just never lose that kind of blank expression. And some people, they just, that light in their eyes would go on. And it was yeah. magical when people came to understand it. But also the difference between a print-based artist and a printmaker. Mm -hmm. So maybe we need to kind of look at those terms because I love working in print. That's clearly my focus. However, do I want to sit there and whip out an edition of 50? No, mm. I do not. Yeah. <laughs> do I want someone to assist me doing that? Because I'm too OCD. I'll just bounce off and look at something else and want to do something different, change the colors. I do need a um, print maker, plate maker, what, what, what have you. There master to keep printer. Track. Yeah. Yeah. A master printer to do it. <laughs> yeah. Like, like if I have to, 
I will. <laughs> I'm hoping to afford the luxury of the assistance one day. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know that, that Tim had a great time producing with you. and, and It was great. Yeah. And I think that that's great. in that kind of community centered printmaking or community centered art making which is what printmaking is you really see people sort of falling into their role and when everything lines up it's it's magic well throughout the whole printing process and this was definitely noted and we laughed quite a few times while printing editions together um, each person each printer goes up and down like you do in a day like you're you're happy, you're positive, and then you kind of slump down, and then you're mm. up again. You start really caring about something, perfect registration and um, counting world, everything, and then you slump down to oh, it's good enough. But usually, when you're paired with a printer, you rotate those schedules. Mm. <laughs> and I think we noticed that when we printed for each other, that, um, for example, if Tim. Uh, thought it was good enough. I'm like, it is not good enough. We need to do this and fix this and do the exact same to me. And that's why you need to print with people. Yeah. It, imp it improves your work. <laughs> yeah, you get the feedback, the live feedback. It's really significant. Yeah, or else you're just going to regret it down the road. I love it. Um, so I think this would be a good place to, to sort of wrap things up, but I'd love to hear you talk just quickly about how celebrity shows up in your work. Oh, yeah, that's one. Um, that was big during the London years, absolutely, and is still a little bit now. Um, it was a whole part of having a recognizable face of power, but power that you might not necessarily be aware of. So I would do someone like Nigella Lawson, who may not be as well known um, in North America, but in the art world, um, her husband at the time was Charles Saatchi in the Saatchi Gallery, mm. who bought up all of the artwork of the YBAs, um, the Damien Hirsts and the Gary Humes, etc. And um, he was caught in this paparazzi photograph of uh, putting his hands around her neck. What was mm -hmm. happening? I don't know. They were in a public place. Um, but having someone like her, I put her on a piece of bread and then I pinched the bread together. Mm. And no one would really get that reference unless you were kind of <laughs> in that circle, in that world. But it was connected again to she, she's um she has a cookbook out. She's known for being very sultry and kind of sexy in the kitchen. Hmm. So it ties it back to the the blenders and the toasters and the mixers and the expensive showroom quality kitchens that I'm still very interested in. I don't use them myself, but I like looking at other people's and how they display their appliances like artwork in a showroom. Oh, yeah. Well, they brought into the play with um, Gordon Ramsay and Jamie Oliver and their faces on, on wooden spoons. And again, the repetition of image, but using technology, um, lasers, to put their images onto the spoons and having them up like toy soldiers. And there's this kind of immaturity to it, but at the same time, it's just, it just keeps me on my toes a little bit because I'm like, what the heck am I so obsessed with with these? Mm. <laughs> and I'm still trying to figure it out but um, 
it's it's going somewhere and it's definitely changing into areas like other objects from the household which have repeat patterns such as those ottomans that we were talking about before yeah ottoman foots plastic whatever you call it but it's <sighs> it's the patterns on them and the colors that are of interest at the moment well thank you so much for for chatting with me and being so open about your history and your practice and um yeah we'll be in touch sounds great thank you so much bye. speak soon thanks bye, <laughs> bye. So if anyone's listened to the first three episodes, you might have noticed that I forgot to ask Miles where we can find out more about him. You can catch Miles on his website, which is squirrelpigeonfish.com, just like the animals, and on Instagram at squirrelpigeonfish. I'll put a link in the show notes for all of those. This episode was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you guys in two weeks.